Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of scripture and theology. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to be looking this morning at the Noahic Covenant, which is given formally in Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 through 17, but it's promised uh, earlier in Genesis chapter 6. So we're going to read both of those passages this morning, uh, and then we're going to spend some time looking at the Noahic Covenant in the context of this broader story of Noah. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy an inspired and authoritative word, Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said, no, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence throughout them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you were to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above, and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds. Of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded. Now fast forwarding to Genesis chapter 9 beginning in verse 8. Then God said to Noah, to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. And remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh 
that is on the earth. Most gracious Father, as we once again look to your word, I ask that you would strengthen me this morning by your spirit that I may proclaim boldly your gospel, even as you have called me to do. Father, illumine our hearts and minds by your spirit that we may understand your word, that we may believe your word, that we may live in light of your word. We ask all of this in the name of Christ, our Savior, who is revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. Amen. Well, if we're going to talk about the Noahic covenant, we need to understand a little bit about Noah's story to begin with. Because what we see as we look at the the unfolding redemption of, of God's plan... Uh, as, as we see all of this happening, we've seen these covenants kind of go along. We saw this covenant of works with Adam. Uh, then we saw the first promise that we looked at last week that kind of announced this overarching promise of how God would deal from then on with all of creation in light of this promise of grace to come. This, this one who would come and crush the head of the serpent who has come and for whom we wait to come again. And it's in light of that grace that we get the Noahic covenant as as kind of one administration of this reality as they were waiting for the Messiah to come and as we wait for him to return. And so what we see about this covenant is that it's a covenant of grace. It's a gracious covenant. That means it's not dependent upon our works. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. It's a gracious covenant set in the context of grace. We see grace upon grace. This is kind of one example of what we're talking about. Here we have a story of grace upon grace. And and it is that because we could also say it's a gracious covenant set in the context of sin. But we know what sin deserves. Sin doesn't deserve the preservation of life. The wages of sin is not, I will keep life going forever. The wages of sin is death. So on the one hand, yes, we can say that that the Noahic covenant is a covenant of grace set in the context of sin, but we can just as truly say the covenant of grace is a gracious, or the Noahic covenant is a gracious covenant set in the context of grace. And that's where I want us to start this morning as we consider the context of grace in which this covenant was set. So first, if we step back, uh, and, and, and we're going to look first at this kind of the, the, the narrow context of this story, which is the story of Noah and the flood. It's a story that is very, very familiar to us. God told Noah uh, to build him an ark and to make it out of gopher wood and, and all of these things. There are rains and rains, and, and I, I, all of a sudden I'm realizing that I'm, I'm basically singing a children's song and doing the, the motions on accident. Uh, it's deeply ingrained, apparently. Uh, but, but God told Noah to build him an arky arky. Uh, um, make it out of gopher barky barky, all that stuff. Uh, the rains came down, the floods came up, and whoosh, yeah. Anyway, it's like, it's, you know, vacation Bible school coming back to homie. Um, but we know the story, right? God, God says, I'm going to destroy everything because of sin. And, and, and he sends this flood, and sure enough, everything but Noah and his family is destroyed because of sin. And, and we read kind of the, the, the impetus for this, for this incredible action by God is found in Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth 
and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, what an assessment of humankind. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now there is a whole other sermon about God being sorry and regretting he had made stuff. We can have that discussion later. That's not the point this morning. What I want us to see is that God's response here to sin was to destroy everything. To end creation. To to bring death as he promised to Adam. But then read verse 8 with me. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now this is a very important verse and the the, the construction of Hebrew here, Matzachin Be'ene Yahweh, is used multiple times, 35 times throughout, uh, or not with Yahweh, but, but found favor in the eyes of, and then somebody, is used 35 times in the Old Testament. And pretty much every single time, what it's indicating is that somebody who didn't deserve to be treated well was treated well. Whether it's Esther who came before the king and and found favor in the eyes of the king. The king could have justly put her away. According to law, he could have had her killed. Justly according to the law. Not according to biblical law, I get that. but, But according to the law, he could have done that. But she found favor. Ruth found favor with Boaz. Right? She had no place in Israel. She was not an Israelite. She could have stayed, should have stayed arguably at home, depending on how you're interpreting it. But she didn't, and she found favor. Over and over and over, we see this idea of finding favor. The Hebrew word Cain is the, the Hebrew word for what we would say is grace. Over and over and over, what's being found in people's eyes, or especially when Yahweh is the one that's looking, when it's His eyes, It's unmerited favor. This isn't God looked at Noah and was like, man, all these other people, they really kind of stink. But you're, you got it going on, Noah. And so I'm going to show you grace. No, that's not what was going on at all here. Just like you and I need to find grace in the Lord's eyes, so did Noah. Now you may be reading ahead and going, oh, the preacher hadn't even read the next verse. Noah was a righteous man. Blameless in his generation. What's going on there? Well, there's a couple of things that we need to understand. First of all, if you look at verse 9, it begins with these words. These are the generations of. This is a very particular formula that organizes the entire book of Genesis. Whenever you see that word, these are the generations of, a, a new story is kind of starting. A new section is starting. So if we read, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and then we see, these are the generations of, We don't necessarily read those verses as as butting right up against each other and forming one another. Because that's a a signal that I'm starting a new section here. Right? It's like chapter 1, this. Chapter 2, this. So so we've got to keep that in mind because what's happening is is, is verses 5 through 8 are kind of giving this overarching picture. And then in verse 9, 
We get this zoomed-in picture with more detail of how Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And you say, okay, fine, but it still says Noah was righteous. Yes, read the next clause. Blameless in his generation. Okay, so so this was a, a situational righteousness, right? It, it's not this categorical, absolute statement, Noah was righteous, no sin. No, no, no. Noah was righteous. He was blameless in his generation. Now, who was his generation? His generation was earlier described this way. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. See, here's what we have to remember. If you're inmate of the month, good for you. But that might not translate into a different population. Noah was righteous. He was blameless in his generation. But his generation was real problematic. So this isn't Noah was righteous, therefore God was good to him. That's not how we need to read this. Now, why why else might I say that? Well, because this idea of of only evil continually, well, guess what? That that pre-flood assessment matches God's post-flood assessment. In other words, the flood didn't really fix the problem. Yeah, it wiped down a whole bunch of people, kind of hit restart, all of that. But, but remember what we read earlier in Genesis chapter 9. I, I won't do this again because the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. God promises not to do what he just did again because he knows the reason he did it is still there. And he's like, oh, I'm not going to do that again. Even though the reason that I did it in the first place still exists, even though y'all all still really stink, I'm not going to do this again. And you may be going, okay, yeah, but, but Noah was righteous, right? Okay, fair. But him and all his children and their spouses were saved. They, they were all spared. So our options are, well, maybe the unrighteousness that that continued after the flood, maybe that was all of his knucklehead offspring. Maybe he was a pretty good dude, but everybody that came from him kind of stunk. Maybe. Maybe. But remember the very next story after the flood narrative wraps up. What is it? It's the story of Noah continuing. and, And it tells this story of basically... Some kind of what, what sounds like, based on the, the one-verse assessment, some wild frat party where Noah ended up blackout naked drunk in his tent. So there's really no way to work through this story that ends with this guy just obliterated out of his board. There's no way to work through this story and be like, yeah, he was righteous. That's why God did this. It just doesn't work out with what the story actually tells us. What does work out is that everybody was a sinner. Things had gotten real bad. And God chose to show grace to Noah. That's what works out perfectly with the story. Is that this one sinner and his family, for some reason, unexplained to us, were told, you're going to be spared and I'm going to make a covenant with you for all the earth. That's what we're told. But we're also given some other other clues as to kind of what's going on here. 
So before we look at, at the next piece of this immediate context, I want us to look and step back at this broader context. Remember the fall. We talked about that all the time because it matters. It, it explains life for us in real ways. And remember, one of the things that we've talked about before, even looking at the covenants, one of the things that we've talked about is the fact that nothing is like it's supposed to be. We, we, we sow, you know, seed and, and, and hope for this fruitful crop. And, and what do we get? Thorns and thistles. Right? And yes, that's a very specific example of farming. But, but everyone in here can attest to the fact that, yes, that, that's just how life works. You sow good seed and, and, and it just goes awry. And it doesn't work. That there's a futility to life that Paul tells us in Romans all of creation has been subjected to, as Jared just read for us a minute ago from Romans chapter 8. There's a futility to life. It's broken. Nothing works like it's supposed to. And, and when we see huge storms come through and, and destroy towns, when we hear about earthquakes or volcanoes or floods or whatever it may be, it would be very tempting to think it's all done. That there's no hope in this world. There's no stability in this world. It's all utterly unpredictable. But what we're told in this story is that that's not how we need to look at creation. That that's not how this all works because there's been a gracious promise made by God himself, the sustainer of all creation. Now, if we take a, a broader step back to, to before the fall, we see that Adam and Eve were told uh, three things. Be fruitful, multiply, or four things. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, and take dominion. Right? So they're, they're told to, to go and fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply. And then they're told in two different ways, take dominion, subdue the earth. Now here's what we have to remember. That's not repeated in full with Noah. Before the fall, they're told, subdue the earth. Go work the garden. Y'all are the rulers. Y'all are in charge. It's going to do what you say, so go take dominion. But when we look at what God tells Noah, he just says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And stops. Now, if you're a, if you're a, you know, a, a biblical thinker and you're like trying to put the piece, you're like, oh, I've heard this language before. But there was something else. Earlier he said, be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth. But here he doesn't. Here he doesn't. Why? Because we can't anymore. We can't anymore. Because creation has been subjected to futility. I, 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 our efforts are futile. Our efforts produce thorns and thistles. When I was driving to, to Westminster Presbyterian Church in uh, Greenwood or Greenland, I get them backwards, Mississippi, uh, the one that's not right on the river. When I was driving there for ordination, a, a flood of effort proportions had, had, was kind of in process. And I drove up whatever highway it was that's kind of between the river and, and I-55 or 20, and it just goes straight north through the delta. And it was just tragic because every field that I passed was a lake. Every field that I passed was a lake. Now, this was, this was for May Presbytery, so, which is Tuesday, by the way. Pray for that. There's a lot of things going on. We, we need your prayer. But, but so I'm driving. When, when these fields, as we just sang, 
They, they should have been like May. They should have been this, this reminding us of the, the blessings of God. Everything was flooded. And it was heartbreaking because every one of those flooded fields represented some farmer whose life work for that year had been obliterated. It was gone. It was just washed away. And there was nothing they could do about it. There was nothing they could do about it. It it would be a fool's errand to go to that farmer and be like, well, what you need to do is subdue the earth. You just need to take dominion. Because he or she would respond to you, listen, do you see that massive river over there? We have dammed it to keep this from happening. We've done everything we've known. We've built massive miles and miles and miles of levees to keep this from happening. We've raised our fields. We've, we've irrigated. We've dug ditches to divert. We've done everything that we know to do to keep this. We have tried to subdue the earth. We've tried to take dominion. It just doesn't work. That's where the Noahic covenant comes in. Because God tells them in verse 7, be fruitful of chapter 9, be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. He gives the first part of that creation ordinance. Go fill the earth. But then notice what the the Noahic covenant does. He says, I'm going to do the other part of it. I'm going to subdue the earth. I'm going to keep it in its boundaries. I'm going to take dominion. You fill the earth. I will subdue it. I will make sure that life continues as I design life to continue. Why? Because that's the only way it could. That's the only way it could. We we can't subdue what's so broken by the fall. We can't do in this life what Adam and Eve were called to do before the fall entered. The game has utterly changed. It's a completely different situation than what they were told to take dominion of. It's a completely different situation than what they were told to subdue. We live in a broken, sinful, sin-ravaged world. And we think we're going to subdue that? We think we're going to subdue the rainstorms? We think we're going to keep the earth from shaking and ripping apart? We think we're going to stop up volcanoes? I can't even stop up my heart and the sin that burst forth from it. And you want me to worry about creation? I don't think so. I don't think so. It's not going to work. The good news of the gospel is that God knows that. God understands that that just like I can no longer subdue my heart and keep his law, I can't subdue this world either. And he's going to do both. He's going to do both. He's going to send his son who would die for the sins of you and me to subdue our hearts to himself. That's the kingly function of Christ. That he subdues us to himself, conquering us and our sins and his enemies on our behalf. The Noahic covenant promises that he'll do the same with creation. I will maintain it. I will will rule over it. 
I will make sure that springtime and harvest continue. I will make sure that this earth isn't flooded again to destroy all life. I will do that. Why? Why? Because back in Genesis 3.15, he had made a promise that a seed of the woman will come and crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And he hadn't come yet when Noah was alive. That's why Noah was spared. Not because he was righteous and God was like, man, I think you can keep this going. But because God said, nope, I made a promise that I'm going to crush the head of this serpent and I don't go back on my promises. So somebody has to make it out alive. Noah, you and your family, get in the boat. Let's do this. Y'all are the ones that get grace. Y'all are the ones that make it out alive because I'm determined for this, this serpent crusher to come and do his work and until he does Noah I'm making a covenant with you and with all of the earth and with every living creature that I will not do this again because I've previously made a promise that I will send my son to die that you might have life I've promised to undo this part of the curse this part of the fall and its effects. And in order to do that, I will step in and I will subdue the earth. I will take dominion where you can't any longer and where you didn't the first time. I will see this through to the end. Notice, notice who it is that's going to be working. I'm going to read the Noahic covenant again. I want you to notice who it is that's going to be working over and over and over through this covenant. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him. Just a quick grammar lesson, just so we're all on the same page. God is the one speaking. So anytime you hear I, it's God. I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, with every living creature that is with you, the birds of the livestock and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all the earth. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. People like to talk about the different kinds of, of ancient covenants that were made. One of them was a, a covenant grant or a promissory covenant like this where, where the ruler or somebody with the authority or the power or the ability to do something steps in and says, I'm going to do this for you free of charge. And nothing is required of the, of the, the, the beneficiary of that covenant. That's the type of covenant we have with Noah. Notice, nothing in the covenant language. He, he's not told to do anything. Over and over and over, God says, I will do this. I will establish the covenant. I will see the rainbow. I will remember the covenant. I will keep this from happening. I, I, I. Yahweh does it all. He subdues creation when man can't. And he does it because he made a promise that the serpent crusher would come 
to destroy the serpent for us and make everything right again. That's where this is all going. That's, that's the hope that the Noahic covenant gives us. Is that God will not forget his creation until he has redeemed his creation. And made everything right again. That's the hope that the Noahic covenant gives us. He, he will not give up on us. He will not give up on his creation. He will not give up on his plan that he decreed before the foundations of the world to redeem a people for himself and to establish us in his perfect kingdom in paradise forever. He will not give up on that. And when he sees the rainbow, notice, when he sees the rainbow, he remembers. The rainbow isn't even a sign for us. It's not a sign for us to remember the covenant. Sure, it's, it's a benefit. It adds to the beauty of the world. It reminds us of his promises. But the point of that sign, according to the Bible, is for God to remember the covenant and say, yes, I'm not doing that again. I'm not doing that again. There, there's a great irony, isn't there? In the fact that, that we use the rainbow now to celebrate our depravity. But all the while, the rainbow is a sign to God that he will not respond to depravity in the same way. We use the rainbow and all it's doing is reminding God, we need your grace. We need your grace. We need it bad. That's what the rainbow does. It reminds the God of all creation that these people that I have created, this world that I have created, must be sustained by me or it'll rip itself apart at the very seams. I'm not going to let that happen until my Redeemer has come and makes it all right again. We read, as, as Jared read to us in, in Romans 8, that, that, this, see, that the promise of redemption isn't just for us, is it? All of creation waits with eager longing for the day of redemption because it's been subjected to futility. All of creation waits for the revealing of the Son of God. And we wait. We wait not vainly, but we wait in accordance with the promises of God found in the promise that he made in this covenant with Noah. Why do we have hope for tomorrow? Because God has said, I have a plan for tomorrow. And I'm going to hold this world together, though it literally at times tries to shake itself apart. I am going to hold this world together until my plan is brought to fulfillment. That's what the Noahic covenant is about. And here's the last layer of beauty that we find in this. Everybody is a beneficiary of this grace. We talk about common grace. Grace to, to, to everyone, to, to all people. Everyone. Every creature. Even those who, who would look God in the face and deny his very existence. Every creature, every aspect of creation gets this grace. Everyone. 
not just Christians, the world, all of creation gets this promise. We're all beneficiaries of God's sustaining grace in this life. And he's sustaining this life that the serpent crusher might come again and restore his creation to his intended state. And he will come again. And we will rejoice in that day. And we will revel in the glory of God's grace when it is poured out in abundance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that that you step in again and again and do what we just simply can't do. And that you do it because you have promised to do it. Because you have set in place in your eternal decrees that are beyond us a plan for the fullness of time to redeem your people, to redeem your creation. And along the way, you give us promises. And you hang signs in the sky designed to remind you, but that remind us as well, that you will see this through to the redemptive end. Oh, Father, fill us with that hope, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.